Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Hulkcast, where today I am joined by a very special guest in the off-season. He works at Sky Sports. He's a very close friend of mine. He's been on the channel before. So if you're if you're wondering why you've heard his voice before, no, you're not listening to the same episode on repeat. He is back 12 months later. I am joined by Mark McAdam. How are you, Mark? Great to see you, Seb. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, so this time last year, you know, we were talking about the prominent return of fans. You know, it seems so long ago. So much can happen in a year. I made sure this year certainly not to take any game that I attended to for granted. How did it feel to have them back? It was brilliant. It was, it was just it was football done right. Um, you know, I was one of the very very lucky people in the country that got to carry on attending football matches and watching live football throughout the pandemic. Um, but I was all too aware that it just absolutely was nowhere near what it should be. It's quite funny because on you know, on your kind of social media, you get memories that pop up from this time two years ago and this time one year ago. And it just seems staggering that I was in an empty stadium with about 50 journalists and, you know, 30 or 40 people connected to the two teams on the pitch wearing a mask. Um, You know, it just almost, you just can't believe it was a real thing that actually happened in our lives. Um. So to have football back with with noise and passion and pride and banter and just everything that the match day experience is about is, is brilliant to have back again. And I'm absolutely delighted that we're, we're back to normal uh, when it comes to football, because, you know, if it had gone on any longer, I don't think many people would have been able to cope. Uh, and me definitely being one of them, because, you know, it was so evident every single time I watched a game. It just it was just it almost felt pointless. Um and uh, I just, you, you couldn't take anything away from it other than you were going there, doing your job and going home. But everything that football is about was missing in that time. So, yeah, I'm glad that one year on, Seb, we're, we're back to, to normality in, in, in many senses. 100% football done right. I like that. I like that a lot. Let's let's jump over to the football then, shall we? We talked about the Champions, Champions League in detail and we discussed the potential of Chelsea. Uh, due to the statement return of Lukaku, I think he'd only just signed <laughs> as we were as we were recording. Um, and I think you mentioned that uh, talks were aimed towards him being the Premier League top scorer for you. Now, yeah, it's clear a year on. You know, <laughs> football isn't on paper, and anything can change. And it's evident now that he wasn't a Thomas Tuchel signing. So that led to Chelsea not getting the best Romelu Lukaku and. Romelu Lukaku not getting the best experience due to him not fitting in the system and being asked to play a way that perhaps isn't suited to his needs. I think a common misconception of Lukaku is that he is a striker that can hold the ball up, can get his back to goal, turn, play a ball off, you know, a big, strong target man. But when I look at Romelu Lukaku and I think of his Everton days and I think of his West Brom days, 
I think if you get Lukaku running at defenders, linking the play up, then I think he's a much better striker. And, you know, I think I think Chelsea did really miss out. But the question I'm going to ask you here is, can Ted Bolly obviously coming into Chelsea since, can he learn from that experience and ensure that it doesn't happen again? Because clearly Lukaku was a, was a higher up signing and it was an aspect of let's bring this in maybe for revenue and the story of, well, he didn't do it the first time, so can he do it again? But, you know, we're sat here a year later with him going back to Inter Milan on loan and Chelsea only getting a 10 million loan fee and it not working out for him or the club. How can that be learnt from in the future from Chelsea's perspective? Well, I thought you were going to play me a clip of, of me saying something about Lukaku this time last year that would have made me look very silly. Because I can do I think, if you'd like. No, definitely not. Um, I, you know, like many people, looked at the signing, looked at the way Chelsea had performed in the Champions League and the impact that Thomas Tuchel had had. And they went, well, that that's kind of the missing piece, isn't it? If he, if he keeps that team and adds Lukaku, who's just been superb and prolific in front of goal at Inter Milan in two seasons, then, you know, that's... That's the missing ingredient. But clearly, this is a you know a big thing, and this is something that doesn't really get spoken a lot about within the media or or perhaps within management teams. But a player's mentality, mindset, and attitude, and willingness to play for that club is key. It almost seems it almost seems you know ludicrous to look back and think that Chelsea paid a hundred million pound for someone that perhaps didn't really ever have his heart set on going back to Chelsea or playing in the Premier League. And I think that's that's the, the, the big kind of thing you learn from this is that if a player's not on board 100%, then you need to walk away from that deal. And you're seeing it at the moment in the current transfer window. There's a couple of deals that are going on where clubs have agreed fees, but nothing's been done in terms of the personal terms. And you have to look at that and go, well, if, if the player's not 100% on coming, then we need to walk away from this deal because... You don't want to have another Lukaku situation. Now, obviously, under Roman, Chelsea had, you know, essentially a, a bottomless pit of money that they could invest into to players and infrastructure and staff and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas under Todd Burley, things are a bit different and he needs to watch the finances. He needs to, to make sure that the football club is run in a, in a sustainable uh, and healthy way. Uh, he's paid a huge amount of money to own Chelsea Football Club. Um, and you'd have to imagine he's not going to want to own a football club of that standing and stature and then not back the manager and support the manager. Um, so I think that there will be a lot of things learned from this situation, not just from Chelsea, but from from other football clubs as well, where they have to look at the scenario at play. Um, and, and it's not always easy to do it in the Premier League. You know, you look at, you know, Serie A, um, La Liga, um, even the Eredivisie uh, or the the French top flight, the pace of these leagues is very different. And to be a good player in Serie A doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come and be a great player in the Premier League. The challenge is far greater. It's far more difficult to impose yourself on teams and games and consistently do it as well is, is, the, big, is the big thing. So, um, yeah, no, really, really interesting points. And, of course, we, we, you know, we all thought that Lukaku um, was going to be the main man for Chelsea and it's turned out not to be the case. Um, so I think everyone sort of lives and learns from those situations. And once again, it's a massive example of just how difficult it is for clubs to get transfers right. You know, when you're a sporting director and you've got a kitty of 
50 to 100 million pounds to spend on players. You get that wrong. That can have a devastating effect on the football club. And I know that fans are constantly saying, oh, we need to sign this person. We need to sign that person. We need to do this. We need to do that. You need to take a step back and go, right, what about the character of the player? What about his family? Is he going to be settled in another country? Can he learn the language? Is he going to enjoy training? Is he going to adapt to the manager's philosophy? Is all of these things in place, green tick, green tick, green tick? Because if you don't have that, then the signing can't be right. And normally clubs will take a gamble on a player where they, where they have a 10-point checklist. And if they get eight of them, um, then they will, they will go for the player. For example, Manchester City have a checklist. If 100% of the, 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 the boxes aren't ticked, they won't sign the player. And that's how significant it is at this top level that you get these signings right because otherwise it could have a massively negative impact on your season and for many years to come. And you know, this time next year, we'll be talking about Lukaku again. You know, what happens now? Does he stay, a new manager in place? Or is Thomas Tuchel still there? Does he go back to Inter Milan on loan? So, you know, it's one of those things that, that signing players is, is massively important. Huge pressure is on every decision that gets made. And Lukaku is just one of those examples as to why it needs to be done right. Because if you don't get it right, it can go very, very wrong. Well, that's really interesting because you mentioned how many boxes need to be ticked. And I think sometimes all the little details, such as family situations and stuff like that, gets overlooked. And it, people yeah. get so engrossed in the fact that it's a footballer, he plays for a football team. Oh, it should be easy. You can adapt into the system, you know, move into a new country. Oh, that's fine. No bother. All this money, you know, why can't they adapt so quickly? And that reminds me of a time that John Terry came out in an interview when he was assistant manager at Villa. And he said that he felt that someone, while we were in our relegation battle um, during COVID, he felt a player wasn't performing to the standard that we needed him to. And he came out in training and he absolutely nailed him in front of everyone. And he went back and told Dean Smith about this. And Dean Smith told him, he sat him down and he went, Look, have you asked him about his family situation? Have you have you asked him how how things are going on at home? You know, his wife, his kids, how how are his relationships at the moment? And it took John Terry almost to take a step back and think, of course, I, I didn't even think of that. So they got him in early for breakfast, and Terry had a one-on-one -on -one chat. And apparently, I mean, the player was left unnamed, so we don't know. But since then, you know, his performances on the pitch just improved massively and he grew to be a massive part of of keeping us up so you know if people at the highest level who have played the game all their lives forget about it then of course the fans are never really going to take that into consideration but I think that is a really really point a poignant point to to understand let's let's stay on the Champions League then another team that were heavy favorites at the start of the year for for both of us were PSG Obviously, Messi coming in, we talked in detail about the impact that that could have, whether he could do it in another league. I don't think he quite exploded the, the way we'd perhaps expected a player of, of Lionel Messi to do. There were, there were many reports coming out about his relationship with Neymar and Mbappe and how you can keep them all happy. But ultimately, they ended up winning the league back, which is something that was critical for them to do. But Again, it seemed like they disappointed in Europe again this year. They didn't get as far as they wanted. I think certainly they they had to have ambitions of winning it, which which they didn't do. And ultimately, Pochettino's now lost his job. And a lot has been made about this new 
Mbappe deal. You talked about Ted Bolly at Chelsea not having a bottomless pit. Well, at PSG, I think it's a, the complete opposite of that. How do they go about finally breaking this hoodoo in Europe and, and getting it right now that they've given all this control to Mbappe and you know they've got another new manager coming in who's going to have to keep such a high calibre of players and their their temperaments happy because there's so many stars in that team. Keeping them happy is almost an impossible job. And I think that's that's part of the success at PSG. Uh, I think Tuchel came out and said his his role at PSG it almost wasn't like a manager and it was like a liaison officer because keeping them happy and keeping their families happy was almost half as hard as as what he had to do on the pitch. So how did PSG finally get this right? Because it seems like for so long they've just been lacking a final piece of the jigsaw. Yeah, well, the PSG stories are really sort of fascinating and intriguing one. They essentially have been investing huge sums of money over the last few years to sign the best players in the world, pay them the most wages and build a side that can go and win the Champions League. Now, after years and years of investment, that hasn't happened. And if you can't do it with Mbappe, Neymar, Messi, uh, Ramos, Di Maria and so on and so forth, in your side, then what it shows you is that it's not just about buying the best talent. It's about building the best team. And it's not always about 11 superstars. It's it's about having a balance and a gel and the right manager and the right philosophy and the right tactics. And I think this year's Champions League has been the perfect example of, of managerial tactical awareness. You look at what Carlo Ancelotti did with Real Madrid. They won the Champions League. Were they the best team? No. Did they have the best individuals? No. But were they the most organised? Were they the most difficult to break down? Were they the most defensively solid? And did they do their job in the final third when they needed to? Absolutely. And I think PSG uh, are changing the dynamic of the way the club is run and what they do. And, and that's certainly happening at the moment. And Mbappe is clearly going to be a big part of that football club in the future. But what you're seeing now is... Uh, a willingness to develop more players, to have younger French players and to build an ethos and a team that is natural and organic in balance. So I think gone are the days for PSG, certainly at the moment, where they just spend a huge chunk of money on one player. I think they are more than aware that that's not the way to do it. It's certainly a way to do it, but it's not the way to do it. And I think... I think you're going to see a, a very different dynamic for them now. And uh, I think that can be only a good thing. You know, we want to see, if, you know, if, if I look at the team I support and I look at other teams that people support, friends of mine, you want to see young players come through the academy. You want to see attractive football. You want to see a connection to the fan base and the history of the football club. And you want to see a team that's honest and hardworking with a manager that you can identify with and enjoy him managing your club. And I think they're more important than buying superstars for so many football fans. Um, so, yeah, I think PSG and the Messi scenario, for my mind, for, for my opinion, for what it's worth, I didn't think it worked out. I thought he had a good season, but he wasn't the, the, the superstar. He wasn't a league or getting 30 to 40 goals as a minimum every season. He, he didn't show that kind of quality in the French league. Yes, he won the title, failed in the Champions League. Um, but I think the jury's still out on that one. I, I, I think there's a this second season will be where he is judged, you know, either as a huge success for that club or as a as a failure. Um, and then 
the questions will come there on thereafter. Has he passed it? Was he a one-man team? Was he just at the, the right club in the right era? Um, it would be really fascinating to see how his career plays out over the next year uh, and if he decides to carry on playing after that. I mean, you're making my job a lot easier with the mention of Real Madrid. It's almost like you can see my notes from there because they were the team <laughs> I was going to link on to last of all in the Champions League. Obviously, the winners and... I think you you hit the nail on the head. They weren't particularly the favourites. You know, they had the massive loss of Ramos, their captain for so many years. Also, Bale was getting very limited minutes and didn't seem as though he wanted to play at all. And just the aura in which they won it, obviously the comeback against Man City and the game versus PSG, you know... It, it almost seemed like it was it was meant to be, you know, with with ninety one minutes on the clock or something, and they're they they need two goals, and then sixty five seconds later they've got that two goals. You know, that doesn't happen in football, or very rarely. Like everyone says about how it doesn't follow the script. We know by now, being involved in football, that football doesn't have a script. You know, it doesn't follow the script, but. Did you did you feel like it was meant to be after they beat City, or were you still heavily heavily on Liverpool? Do you know what? It's, it, was, it was one of those Champions League finals that it was so difficult to call. I I genuinely believe that if Liverpool had been at their best, they would have won. Uh, but I think Don Carlo was at his tactical best, and that's why Real Madrid won. I think there was such a you know such an experience from Carlo Ancelotti in that competition, such an awareness of Liverpool's strengths. And there was such a resilience from that Real Madrid defence to get the job done. They knew that if they shut Liverpool out, that they'd win the game because they'd get a chance at the other end. And they knew that they had the ability to take that chance with, with the players in, the, in that final third. So, uh, you know, I think it, it's a really, you know, again, it's, it's, it just goes back to the, the whole thing. It's, it's not about one individual superstar. It doesn't matter what players you lose from your side. Someone will step into that place. Someone will take the jersey and take on that pressure and weight of expectation that, 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 that those people have. So it was almost written, wasn't it, like you say, after the Man City game, that, that Real Madrid almost had their name on the trophy. Let's be honest, they've always had their name on the trophy. They are serial winners of that competition and it almost feels like you know there are there are sort of very few certainties in life you know death taxes and Real Madrid winning the Champions League um it's just the way these things go yeah definitely I think let's not bore people with the Champions League for too long obviously the excitement you would would be saying that if Villa are in it (laughs) I, I mean, 100%, but I mean, well, they're not. So let's move on. <laughs> we've, we've got the World Cup this year. Again, Villa not in it, but let's focus on it. Um, England, obviously, favourites again, as as we always seem to be. We we focused on Argentina a lot last time we were, we were together. Um, they'd just come off the back of winning the Copa America. This time, they're... They've just won the 3-0 finalissima, I think I pronounced that right, against Italy at Wembley. And I think that puts them in an even higher bracket than I thought they might be because, you know, there's always this stigma around South American teams like Argentina 
and Brazil, when they win the Copa America, that, well, can they do it against the European teams? We, we never really see that until it comes to a major competition. And I think that that display against Italy, granted Italy, you know, have won the Euros, but they didn't qualify for the, for the World Cup. I, I think it was still a very big statement and the likes of Argentina and Brazil can't be overlooked because, you know, the attacking talent that Brazil have and the, the way that Argentina have stabilised themselves in, in recent years to becoming a much stronger outfit and less reliant on, on Lionel Messi. Could, could one of those teams be up there in the final for the World Cup, potentially go on and win it? I think you'd be surprised if the South American sides weren't there in the latter stages of the competition. Um, again, it's it's a part of history and culture and tradition. And no one really understands or appreciates just how life or death football is in South America. It's everything to those people. And 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 that you know, the World Cup comes around and and this is their opportunity on the biggest stage. The Argentina story is fascinating because it will probably be Messi's last World Cup. Um, so that will be be special. He's always been labelled with the man that, that can do it for Barcelona, but can never do it for, for Argentina. Now that he's won the Copa America and, and proved that he can do it in the white and blue as well, as, as, as shown he has quality at, at that level. And... Again, it's it's not about superstars and individuals. It goes back to what we were saying about the Champions League chat. It's about the right team with the right manager and philosophy. Um, you know that Brazil and Argentina will be strong in the World Cup. You know that there'll be, you know, some of the big Europe, European sides that will be will be there or thereabouts. And you know, from a personal perspective with England, you you hope that they are as as strong and as as together as they were in the Euros and the World Cup uh, four years ago. And, you know, I, I just think you, you you feel like there's a connection to the team. You feel like the manager knows what he's doing. I know he's had a little bit of stick recently and things haven't been so good in the Nations League. Um, but you, you get the feeling there's more to come from this group. And the timing of the World Cup being in November and December, these players are going to be at their physical best and, you know, peak fitness and performance levels because they haven't just played a 10-month season and they're they're tired. They are all fresh. They're going to have had a break over this summer, probably not long enough. At the start of the Premier League season will come around, but then, you know, very, very quickly, sort of two and a half months later, you're going to stop and get ready for the World Cup. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be one of those tournaments that I think will, will light up the world once again. Uh, and the great thing about it is there are probably eight teams that could win it. So it's very difficult to put your money on, but there's no question South American sides will be will be right at the sharp end in the in the semi-finals and, and probably one of one of them at least in the final. Is England's recent poor form a worry for you? Not at all. Not at all. I think um, in all honesty, I, I understand the you know the complexities of an international calendar and the last thing that these players needed off the back of the COVID season and a full intense Premier League campaign was to go and play four games, uh, you know, in quick succession. Um, uh, particularly when the World Cup and the football season starts a lot earlier. And, you know, they needed a break. They needed to switch off. And I think they've given so much to the three Lions over the course of the last few years that um, I don't think we read anything into that. I don't think those players 
have, have gone to being bad players overnight. I think there was just it was circumstance to do with the timing and the season, the campaign and the intensity of, of games and, and everything. And I just think it's one of those things. I think when we get to the World Cup, they'll turn it on and they'll be ready to go. Now, I'm going to ask you a question here, which is probably difficult for you to answer, but I'd, I'd like to think that you'll give me an honest answer anyway. There's, there's this a about lot... about Lee Bowyer being sacked <laughs> by Birmingham. <laughs> no, 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 we don't focus on them. No, of course not. Um, it's about Southgate and... He's come under a lot of criticism from, from Villa fans also, as well as, as other fans up and down the country for his style of play and the tactics that he adopts and the way that he sets the England team up. Do you think that it's the right way to go about it? Do you think that he's going the right way about it? Or would you like to see him go more attacking and give more influence to those young attacking players that we have at our disposal right now? Well, it depends what you want to do, really. I think, do you want to go out and get beaten 6-0 and be open and expose yourself at the back? Or do you, go, do you want to go and win tournaments and win matches and progress? I think it's so easy to say we should be doing this or we should be doing that. Judge Gareth Southgate, on his record in big tournaments, got to the Euros final got to the semi-final of the World Cup. Every single time he has managed England at a big tournament, they have shown progression and development. And you'd argue that this is the tournament where we go and win it because we got to the semi-finals, then we got to the final. Can we go one stage further? And it, and it really riles me that you know, he gets the stick he does because, I, I, you know, what? look at Real Madrid. Look at Carlo Ancelotti. You know, what happened? I know we're going back to the Champions League game, but what happened? They won the, the competition. Now, if you said to any football fan in the world or any England fan, you're going to win the World Cup, but you're not going to play great football, I think 99.9% .9 of them would say, I don't care how bad the football is. If we win the World Cup, that's all that matters to me. And I think it's about getting the tactics right. You know, let's look at the analogy. Everyone thinks that Don Carlo is a tactical genius uh, and everyone says that Gareth Southgate's negative he can't win he can't win and you know I just think that this is this is probably Gareth's biggest test as England boss um, you know when he came into the job there was no pressure or expectation and then he built something he built a togetherness with the squad and a vibrancy about the young players and he gave people the opportunity to play and be a part of it and he got rid of some of the more experienced players and you've been on, we've all been on this journey that has been progressive and been enjoyable and they've won things and done well, done well. Um, and when I say won things, they've, you know, they've won matches, they've, they've won the hearts of the nation. And um, this now is the big test. You know, can you build on all of that stuff, all that good stuff that you've achieved? Um, but yeah, I just think football fans, you know, and, and this is where I'm lucky because I get to sit face to face with managers and talk tactics and ask them questions and sit in those meetings. And when they explain why they do things, nine times out of 10, you go, okay, I never thought about it like that. And now I understand why you're doing that and why you're saying that and why you've set that person up with that way and why that tactics like that. And why there's always a thought process. And you have to remember every single football club as well, 
there will be the manager and the assistant manager and there'll be three or four coaches and there'll be a set piece coach and there'll be a defensive set piece coach and there'll be sports scientists and there'll be three or four analysts and there'll be three or four scouts and there'll be there's a lot of people that go to the go into the the mechanics of, of setting up a team tactically not very often these days is it one person's decision Stephen Gerrard won't be making every single decision. He'll have a team of people around him. The buck stops with him and he has the final say. But invariably, everything that goes on will be a collective from him and his team management to try and build the right team and get the right result in the right way. So, yeah, I think people need to just support Gareth. Let him be. Um, you know, he has proved the last couple of tournaments that he's he's got the ability to take us deep into the tournament so let's back him again and hope that we can we can be as successful as we were before you talk about progression what is what can be deemed as success then for the world cup if someone said to me england would get to the semi-final i would be massive success that would be for me that would be a big success and i would i would say fantastic semi-final of the world cup again that shows that what we're doing, the, the things that are being put in place, the England DNA, the progression of the players, the manager, the tactics, everything is going in the right direction. That's the one thing you would say if we got to the semi-final. You probably feel that, um, you know, sem- you know, a, a quarter-final would be, would be good, but be disappointing because we have such high standards now. Um, but again, I think the, the big thing is the manner in which you go out. You know, do do you go out playing your best football and, and, and having a great game and are you just beaten by a better team on the day? Or or do you go out, you know, with a whimper? And I think that's that's key is that, you know, you just see a really good, energetic, vibrant, positive performance from this young group of players that you enjoy watching. Because people seem to forget that football is still the entertainment business. And as a football fan, I want to be entertained. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, I think we've covered the World Cup in some detail, considering it's not until the back end of the year. Now, something a bit sooner than that is obviously the return of the new Premier League. Now, I love the return of the Premier League. The few weeks beforehand, it always feels refreshed. Everything feels revitalised and there's new hope, new opportunity. And none less for, of course, Aston Villa. Why else would you be on an Aston Villa podcast? Of course, we were going to have to touch on them at some point. Now, last season was difficult because we obviously had the, the loss of Jack, which I think in a domino momentum led to also the loss of Dean Smith. and. It's never, it's never easy to 
maintain good form and to progress from where you were the previous season if you if you lose a manager and obviously your key player you know I remember a quote that you were saying you said we'd be surprised if Villa were outside the top seven with top 10 a must (laughs) and and obviously we ended up finishing 14th you know a really disappointing campaign you know I don't know why you've got me back on because everything I said last year has been rubbish (laughs) where did it all go wrong like for Villa well, you're probably better placed to, to to answer that question for me. I think, um, like you say, lo- losing you know the star man Jack Grealish was 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 a big part of 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 you know the dynamic shift uh, in the dressing room and the football club. You always felt like Dean Smith was on borrowed time. Really, you always felt like the ambition of the football club was to you know essentially, let's be honest, they want to get into the Champions League. They want to be in the top four. They want to challenge where they did many years ago for Premier League titles. That is, uh, or top flight titles, I should say. That is that is what that football club's history is, has been built on. And that's what they want to attain again. Of, of course, it's a clear building process. It doesn't happen overnight. But you always felt like that, you know, that that was always inevitable at some stage, um, that that would, that would happen. Um, and Dean Smith was brilliant for Aston Villa in so many ways. Like, you know, top class in everything he did. Um, so you had the loss of that and, and then a new manager coming in um, with, with, with Stephen Gerrard who has been um, you know adapting to life in the Premier League you know playing in the Premier League is one thing but but playing you know managing in the top flight is something completely different so he needs to to, to take time to uh, adjust and learn and become the right type of manager and coach that he wants to be and that the football club want him to be um, so that was always going to take a little bit of time. I think now, though, this is where the pressure starts to to ramp up with with Aston Villa looking ahead to the, to the new season. This is his team now. This is his transfer window. This is his um, stamp on on that squad, and he's had long enough to you know build a philosophy and implement things he wants around the training ground, and to turn the team into exactly what he wants it to be. So I think there'll, there'll be a lot and rightly so expectation on, on Aston Villa this, this season. Um, you know, I, you know, you did look at things from the outset and, and, and think, well, that, that there's a lot of quality there. They can get into, to the top, top seven. Um, but clearly they, they fell short and, um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how things unfold because the Premier League this season, you know, let's be honest, Liverpool and Man City are still, you know, the top two and, and will be, providing any you know disasters um the the next four places are up for grabs really but you know the you know that the third fourth fifth and sixth will be essentially Chelsea Tottenham Arsenal Manchester United um and then obviously it's going to be a real scrap for for those next places in the Premier League with the likes of Leicester West Ham Wolves Brighton and essentially Villa um, it's a challenge to just finish in the top 10 these days um, and that's what makes the Premier League so exciting yeah I, I mean I completely agree and if you were to if you were to ask me I think probably one of the main factors were the fact that we struggled to get a relationship form with Danny Ings and Ollie Watkins obviously both amazing strikers in the Premier League but to have them together and to get them to gel is a completely different question, but 
like you said earlier, these things just, they don't form overnight. And I was wondering whether all hope is lost with those two, because with Ings and Adams, obviously Shea Adams at Southampton really struggled in his first season, but then in his second season, the season before Ings joined Villa, I remember those two formed a really good partnership and they both really seemed to click for Southampton. And, you know, like you said, these these things take time. So do you think that with the additional pre-season and now that they've had that time together, that things will come a lot easier for them this season and there is still hope that they can work together and produce for Villa on the pitch? Well, you certainly hope so. You certainly hope that now that they've had a bit of time together and, um, and, and, and a good bit of time, proper bit of time on the training pitch and, and off the pitch, they can, they can build that relationship and rapport. But sometimes things just don't happen in the same way that, that people would like. You know, certain players want to pick up certain positions. They want to do certain things. And if they're too closely mirrored to the player that they're playing alongside, and you often find that you, you end up doing things in the game that you wouldn't naturally do because you're trying to do something different because the player you're playing with is also trying to do that. And that's where the balance of the team and the balance of the strike force is so important. I've been watching Danny Ings since he was in the Bournemouth Academy as a 16-year-old. You know, I've watched him, you know, from the very beginning, um, literally the very beginning, you know, before he'd even kicked a ball professionally. And I was there at his first ever professional football match when he when he played for Bournemouth. Um, and he's got so much ability. He's obviously been rocked by injuries over his career, but there's no question he's a goal scorer. He proved that at, um, you know, Bournemouth as a youngster. He proved that time and time again in his career. And, and latterly, obviously, Southampton, hence the move to Aston Villa. Ollie Watkins is, a, is another one of those players I've been watching since he was young at Exeter City, just down the road with Paul Tisdale, who's a, a manager I've spent a lot of time working with and watching and learning from. And, you know, we had a really good relationship in the media and I always admired him for what he did at that club. Um, so what you've got there is two really honest, genuine, hardworking players that have worked their nuts off to get to the highest level. You know, these are, these are boys that have come out of the EFL. These are boys that have grafted and understand and appreciate the values that, uh, that are important to, to get your opportunity. Um, and I think there could be, you know, this is one of the big things for, for Aston Villa this season is, is can Stevie G get that partnership to work? Can he, can he make that? Can he sprinkle a little bit of magic on those two that just makes everything click? And that, and that will be the biggest challenge. But there's no question that, you know, Danny and Ollie will uh, be looking at the situation and going, well, we should be getting 40 goals between us, you know, and, and, and Philippe should be, be tuning, you know, chipping in with, with 10 to 15, 10 to 15 assists. And if you look at that on paper and you think, well, that, that could be a really exciting front three um, that, could, that could cause some real havoc in the Premier League, it would be a source of uh, comfort for Villa fans that that, that is the, the dynamic of your strike force because that could be really, really exciting. Um, but that's the challenge now. Steven Gerrard has got to get the best out of these players and he's got to hit the ground running and, and convince everyone around the football club and in that dressing room and the fan base that this is a special team and that this season could be a, a season of success and achievement. But you're only going to do that by, by having the perfect start and, and putting yourself in the mindset that you're there to disrupt the top four. You're there to get in Europe. And, and, and that's going to be key for the first six, six to ten games of the season. I mean, I've always said that starting the season is critical to 
to how the rest of it plays out. It sets a precedent then. Now, obviously, we know Aston Villa isn't your main strong point. However, with working with the EFL and obviously the hours watching it must be must be endless with the job that you do. You yeah. know, the, the knowledge of the EFL couldn't couldn't be stronger. And one player in particular that I wondered if you could give Villa fans some insight on is is Cameron Archer. He was on loan at Preston last season. Um, he obviously he did really well and he's come back to Villa this season with a point to prove about whether he can he can get the minutes. Obviously, there's there's five subs now in the Premier League. So a lot of people are talking about whether he can get on the pitch and get minutes because he seems a real bright spark of our academy. Is there any insight that you could offer us to his game? Well, Cameron Archer is, is one of those players. When I first watched him, um, I got excited. And then when he joined my pal Ryan Lowe at Preston, I got excited. And then when I watched him play for Preston a couple of times last season, I was excited. So, um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm lucky because obviously with Soccer Saturday and with Soccer Specials, I get to watch two EFL games as a minimum every single week throughout the course of a season. So I'm, I'm blessed and privileged that I get to see so many teams, players and managers and Cameron Archer was one of those young lads that, that sprung onto the, the scene, got the goals in the cup and, and suddenly announced himself to the fan base. The key thing with him is, is progression, development and time. And everyone will be expectant about, oh, he can score goals in the Premier League. Can he get on the bench? Can he come off the bench and score? I think he can. Um, I remember watching him for Preston. I was really impressed with his movement, with his work rate with his finishing. Um, he looked dangerous. Um, he, he pulled into pockets. He moved defenders around. He had a nice turn of pace. I just saw almost the complete footballer in, in, in so many ways. Now, I don't want to put too much pressure on the lad because he's still a very, very young boy and he's got a long, long way to go. But you're seeing all the raw credentials that would excite you as a fan. So I, I don't know. I, I know that you, you speak to any championship side, would they want to take him on loan? 100%. So he's probably got 24 options in the championship if he wants one. And I'm pretty certain that there will be two or three Premier League clubs that will be looking at him thinking, well, if you're not going to get game time at Villa, we'll give you some game time. You're not going to start week in, week out, but you'll be in our squad and you will definitely play a part. And that will then be obviously up to, to the lad and to Steven Gerrard and for, for Aston Villa. Him getting Premier League minutes is, is almost what he needs. Can he get it at Villa? Maybe. Or will he need some, some time to, to get it elsewhere? But I think his progression and pathway is a really, really exciting one. And uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to see a, a live Cameron Archer goal last season. Are and, you talking um, about a loan deal for Archer in the Premier League or, or would clubs be I, looking at him permanently? I don't think anyone would be able to afford what Aston Villa would want for him. I think, you know, if Aston Villa were to sell him, they would be looking at 30 million plus. And I don't think anyone would take that kind of a gamble. You know, you look at some of the players coming out of the championship, uh, the likes of Brennan Johnson or Keane Lewis Potter, they're, they're valued at 20 plus million. Uh, so therefore, Cameron Archer naturally would be valued probably more than that because he's a Premier League player. And, and although he's just played in the championship, he's still attached to a Premier League club. So I don't think there is any way that anyone would be able to afford the type of money that Villa would, would consider selling him for. Um, 
And I think Villa know that they've got special talent there, so they wouldn't want to let him go. They'd want him to develop and be a part of it. So it'd almost certainly be a loan move um, that would that would be on the table. Um, I don't think anyone could get to the, the financial figures that, that Villa would like. So, yeah, getting minutes would be key for him. Just He, he just wants to play. And um, you never know, you know, every single player, 100% of the players that are professional footballers have been gambled on by a manager at some stage. Everyone. Everyone needs to be given their first appearance. And you never you never know. That's why pre-season so key. If Cameron Archer plays for Aston Villa in pre-season, scores six goals and plays really well, guess what? He's going nowhere. You know, and that's the same for every single player at the football club. Play well, impress the manager, convince him you're ready. Uh, and he can't send you out on loan. He can't send you away. He's got to keep you around the football club. Um, but yeah, Cameron's definitely one of those players that I'm, I'm excited to see how he, if he gets on this season, uh, whether it's at Villa or out on loan somewhere. I think he's a huge talent. And, and I think, uh, you know, he'd be one of those ones that you'd, you'd look back on in a few years' time and say, yeah, I remember, I remember talking about him when he was a kid. I remember watching his first appearance. I remember watching, watching him play out on loan in the EFL. Um, and um, yeah, I think that, that could be a special journey to, to watch. Obviously, you work really closely with Bournemouth. Um, are, they, are they one of the clubs that would be interested in him on loan? Oh, that's a good question. That's a very leading question, Sebastian. Is I, it one you know the answer to, or is it just? Uh, do you know what? I can, I can be totally honest and say no. He's not a name that I have discussed with my my contacts um, at Bournemouth. Um, you have to look at the players they've got, the likes of you know Dominic Solanke, who scored twenty nine goals last season, and uh, obviously Kiefer Moore, who's a, a Wales international and scored a crucial goal that got Bournemouth promoted. Um, and, and Jamal Lowe as well, who's an experienced DFL man. So I, I don't necessarily think that a striker is high on their agenda right now, but it's definitely not against happening. Could I see Cameron Archer at Bournemouth? Yeah. Uh, would I like it? Yeah. Um, is, it, is it in the pipeline or has it been discussed? No. So um, let's wait and see. But in transfers and in football, five minutes is a very long time. And it's that quickly how things can change. Yeah, 100%. And I really like that you mentioned transfers because before we before we touch on you personally, the last thing about Villa will be our incoming so far. Obviously, we've brought in Coutinho on a permanent deal, but then we've got yeah. some unknown quantities such as Diego Carlos and Bubakar Kamara. Now, I say unknown quantities for people that mainly focus on the Premier League. Do you know much about them? Is there anything that you could tell us about what to expect from them? Diego Carlos is a player that was watched by a number of Premier League sides. Uh, he got close to joining Newcastle in, in January. I always take a, a special interest in the players that Eddie Howe likes to sign because obviously I worked with him for, for many years and I've known him and followed Bournemouth as well. And he has a very clear, targeted philosophy for the types of characters and players he wants to sign. So I think, you know, that that would always tick a box for me if, if you're signing a player that, that had an interest from Eddie Howe, then I think that shows you a little bit about the type of player you've signed. At 29 years old, clearly having played in the Liga for a number of years, he's experienced um, and, that, and that's going to be key. Uh, the fact that he was wanted by a number of clubs is, is also important because it shows that there is something there that clubs were attracted to. And then you look at the, the fee, you know, near on £30 million that's been spent on him, gives you an indication as to the quality that Aston Villa feel he has. So clearly, that, that's a big plus uh, in so many ways. Coutinho is, is Coutinho. You know what you're going to get there. Um, 
with him and you know the money you've paid for him as well I know again he's 30 but you know you've got a lot of quality there and and Aston Villa fans have seen it firsthand obviously the goalkeeper Olsen is is essentially a backup goalkeeper so that you know that's fine no issues there and um obviously Bubakar Kamara as well will, will come in to, to sit and hold and, and shield that that back four from Marseille as a free transfer so I think you've got a nice blend and mix of players that you've signed youthful energy and experience definitely experience there as well with with something Steven Gerrard wants you've seen it with Tottenham this summer Antonio Conte doesn't want young kids to develop he wants players that can do it now and and that's and that's really important um you know you don't need no gelling time or or, or, or time to adapt. You want players to be able to perform immediately. Uh, and if you want to win things and, and progress in the Premier League, you have to have players that, that can hit the ground running. Um, I always like clubs that get their transfer business done early, and that was what Villa have done so far. They've been quite targeted. They've, they've clearly had a plan, and that's important. You've seen it with Liverpool Man City. Identify the players you want, find out how much they cost, and go and get them. If, if you believe that those football clubs are going to Im, uh, be improved with those signings, then it's a no-brainer. Sometimes you might pay a little bit more than you want to, but in the bigger picture of things, hanging on and waiting and delaying things only does more damage and risks those players going elsewhere. So I think it's yeah, really, really sort of good business so far by Aston Villa, and I'm, I'm you know, I think there could be the, the makings on, on on a really good, strong backbone of a team. Good pace amongst it good bit of experience a lot of quality nice bit of technical quality I think everything in there could be could be really good well we can hope we we sat here last time saying the same thing and and that didn't get us very far obviously there's there's still some time (laughs) for deals to be done so I blame you for that (laughs) Uh, yeah I'll take the blame on this on this occasion now before we wrap things up I'd just like to talk about you personally obviously another year working closely with Sky and obviously a year with the fans back, it was almost like a monumental season. And it, it again, it felt really refreshed having everything back. Have you got any personal highlights of last season? One that sticks out in your mind? For me oh, personally, wow. if I could think about it, the January deadline day for Bournemouth just seemed to be immense. I think, how many players did they bring in in the end? Five. Five, Five on deadline day. day. Yeah, uh, I had a deadline day with Harry Redknapp where he signed, I think it might have been five or it might have been four. It was a long time ago. My memory's not great with some of these things. Um, it's always difficult to pick out highlights. You know, I'm I'm so, so lucky that I get to do the best job in the world and I have the best seat in the house when it comes to watching games and interviewing players and managers and following this this crazy game that we call football that we all fall in love with. Um, highlights for me I'd, I'd have to say I, I did a show with with Rosie Jones called I'm Game where we went and became backroom staff at West Ham Ladies for the day that was brilliant uh, a really amazing moment for me in, in, in working with her and, and West Ham Academy, uh, West Ham uh, Ladies who are just brilliant to, to be around um, obviously the, 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 the end of the seat my last my last three games of the season were were brilliant. You know, it was it was the FA Cup final uh, in which Liverpool won. Then it was the League One 
final in which Sunderland won. And then it was the championship final uh, in which Nottingham Forest won. So my last three games of the season were Wembley, Wembley, Wembley. Um, so I'm, I'm so lucky to have had that. And I probably have to think about my other moments as well. You know, obviously the, the transfer windows are, all, are always great fun. Um, and uh, January is always, was, you know, is always brilliant as well because you, you know it's so crucial to teams staying up or going down the business they do in January. Um, obviously, I'm so lucky to work on Sky Sports News and, and, and obviously Soccer Saturday. Um, sad to see Cami go. Great to have Jeff around for for another few years yet. So, so that's that's amazing. Um, and um, it's, there's probably so many things I've done that I've forgotten about um, that I'd look back on and go, "Well, that was a, that was a good day out and that was good fun." Um, but um, yeah, once again, the great thing about this job is that let's do it all again. Let's let's go again. And that's and that's what that's what this is about. It's a it's a factory. It's a you know, you, you jump in, in line and you, and you crack on and you, you, you start in July this year and then you finish sometime at the end of May and, and then it happens in a whirlwind. But um, yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world. If there was one thing you could pinpoint that you're looking forward to for the next season, is there anything that sticks out? It's got to be the World Cup, hasn't it? I think, you know, there's nothing like it. It comes around every four years. It's super special. And like most England fans, you're all going, well, you know, let's be honest. Historically, we've always been, well, and we've got no chance, have we? Whereas maybe this this season, you just think semi-final, final Euros, young team, halfway through the season. Is this, is this the year? Is this the year we can actually get a little bit excited? Um, but as they say in football, it's the hope that kills you. I was just um, about to say that. You stole that right out of my mouth. So, yeah, you never know. But, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, everything will be will be great this year. And again, you know, you know, let's let's be honest as well. We we want to watch football. And we want to enjoy our teams and our performances and our moments on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday or whenever these games get played these days. But what I would really, really, really love more than anything else is to know that I can watch my team and watch the teams I enjoy watching with everyone in the world safe and comfortable and happy. And we want to see football back in Ukraine. And we want to see families back where they belong at their homes. And for all the things that we get excited about in football, there's so much more to life than football, even though at times it feels like life and death so that would be my my big hope for this season is that we can we can all go back to doing what we love doing with the ones we love knowing that everyone in the world is is safe um and that that all the the nastiness is 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 gone and that's more important than any football match well 12 months on since mark last joined us on the Holt cast and i still find his insight just as interesting as i did before I'm really grateful for Mark for giving us his time and for also giving us a slight insight into what we can expect with Cameron Archer and also Villa in general, as well as the wider football world for the upcoming season. 
Make sure to look out for him on Sky Sports as well as following us on the Holtcast if you don't already. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's 7500-HOLT, 7500-HOLT. Me on Twitter is SebastianBacon8. And make sure to look out for regular upload schedules as this is a new season for the Holtcast and we plan to bring you bigger and better things from myself, Cole, down to everyone else, Simon, Danny, Tom as well. Everyone here is looking to improve for the next season and we think it could be a really interesting season. So we hope to have you along for the ride up the villa. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.